Hello, my fellow seasoned athletes, and welcome to the Seasoned Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Leggett. The Seasoned Athlete Podcast is your home for stories, inspiration, motivation, training tips, and more directly from elite athletes from a wide variety of sports who all share one common bond. They are all over 40 years old. We're here to prove one story at a time that age doesn't have to prevent you from achieving your bold athletic and fitness goals. You can learn more about this podcast at seasonedathlete.me. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe, share with everyone you know, and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And now, on with the show. Welcome to episode 10 of the Seasoned Athlete Podcast. Today, I'll be talking to triathlete Cherie Gruenfeld. But first, Let's meet this week's Everyday Seasoned Athlete. The Everyday Seasoned Athlete segment is where I get to shine the spotlight on athletes who are over age 40 and at various points in their athletic journey. My hope is that through these stories these athletes share in their own words, you'll be inspired to get out and try something new. We'll be sticking with the triathlete theme this week and featuring someone I met on an 80s cruise of all places. We met in an aerobics class while wearing retro leotards and became friends through our shared love of both 80s music and fitness. And along the way, I have followed her journey as a triathlete, and I'm really excited for her to share it with you today. Meet this week's everyday seasoned athlete, Christina Willis. Hey, my name is Christina Willis. I'm 42 years old, and I am a triathlete. We always question why we do something, why we made certain choices, and why we didn't make certain choices. Sometimes it's nice to reflect on why we do what we do. It gives it more meaning and reminds us of the value of our choice. I compete in triathlons for many reasons, but one word best explains this, challenge. I started cycling in 1998, and around five years ago, for me, it became a chore and wasn't fun anymore. Friends would ask, what are you doing this weekend? My answer was always riding. I wasn't challenged, and my goals were dwindling. I went to the Kona Ironman in 2013 and was a volunteer, but really didn't appreciate what I was watching until much later. The idea of swimming, then biking, then running was the challenge I needed to jumpstart my next adventure in life. After getting bored in Seattle in the snow with my family and not being able to get on my bike that day, the only thing left was to go for a run. I hadn't run since high school as after my knee surgery in 1998. It, it just didn't seem like the thing to do. So running began. Surprised myself, but was actually able to run, and it felt pretty good. So I started doing duathlons. A duathlon is a run, then a bike, then another run. A short race, but the gateway to triathlon. Super fun and was a challenge, especially with my drive to win. Then another year later, I decided to add in the swim, make a triathlon out of it. I hadn't swam since I was eight years old, but figured if I could run 100 miles on a bike, I can swim for 10 minutes. Boy, was I in for the shock of my life. <laughs> so hard to just swim 10 minutes in the pool. But, you know, I started off doing sprint triathlons, which was around a 500-meter swim, a 12-mile bike, and a 5K run. I remember my first try. I was gassed after that swim. And then I was actually gassed again after that run. My goal was to not be last. I kept doing the sprints for about a year and decided it was time to up my game. I joined a triathlon team and gained a coach in 2014, which pushed me to my next level. Many tries later, I decided it was time to do a half Ironman. A half Ironman was a 1.2-mile swim, a 56-mile bike, and a half marathon. At the time, it was peer pressure, I'll admit it. I didn't need to do it, but everyone else on my team was, so it seemed like the thing to do. At that time, I also had not even done a half marathon before. 
as I had just started running about a year prior. So while I was in Seattle again visiting my family, I signed up for my first half marathon. To my surprise, I completed the run and was a huge accomplishment as back when I had my knee surgery, I had never thought that running would ever be in my future, hence why I started cycling. I remember my first half Ironman as if it was yesterday, a 5 a.m. that morning, and I started crying in the parking lot, thinking about what I was about to do and how I had worked so hard to get to this day. My friend said, don't cry, you haven't even done the race yet. I dried my eyes and off I went. When I finally crossed the finish line, I raised my hands up in the air and started bawling. My brother and nieces were there to cheer me on and give me a hug. It was the greatest accomplishment I had ever achieved in my life. I worked so hard and it was all worth it. Triathlon has taught me so many things and I have learned so much from many of my teammates and coach. You can train hard, but you never know which you will show up that day. So roll with it. Take what you're given and go with it. Positive affirmations really do work. If you see yourself succeeding, you will. The negative talk will ruin any chance you have of accomplishing your goal. 30% of tries is physical. We train seven days a week in all three disciplines, and only 30% of the race is made up of all of that time. The other 70% mental. You can talk yourself out of completing the race or even starting the race. If you feel you won't finish, you won't. If you feel you will finish and finish strong, you will. Tries are you and you alone. It's a lonely sport while racing, but also very rewarding too, because you did it by yourself. It is you that got yourself to the finish line and achieved your goal. In 2016, I competed in the half Ironman world championship in Australia. I represented the United States in my hometown of Houston, Texas. It was an honor to be there and compete in one of the most beautiful places in the world. Not only was I up for the challenge, I surpassed what I felt would have been impossible four years prior and finished strong with a smile on my face with a tear that rolled down my eye. I'm Christina Willis, and I am a seasoned athlete. If you are over 40 and compete in a sport at any level and would like to be featured on this show as an everyday seasoned athlete, visit seasonedathlete.me slash everyday and tell me a little bit about yourself. And now let's get to know this week's featured seasoned athlete. Meet triathlete and Iron Woman, Cherie Gruenfeld. Hi, Cherie. Hi there. Are you ready to drop some seasoned athlete knowledge on our listeners today? If I can, I sure will. So you are Cherie Gruenfeld, one of the most decorated masters triathletes in the world. You have competed in 27 Ironman races, including the Ironman World Championships in Hawaii 21 times, where you have won the world title in your age group 13 times and currently hold the 70 to 74 female course record. You've also twice won the double, the world half Ironman title and the world Ironman title in the same year, also earning you the female 70 to 74 course records in each of those races. And you're the first female over 55 years of age to ever break the 12 hour mark in an Ironman and you did it in Hawaii perhaps the toughest course in the world. And despite all of these achievements, your greatest passion may be the work you do as the founder and director of the Exceeding Expectations Foundation, where you use your love of sport to help at-risk kids become the best they can be. Is there anything vital personally, professionally, or from your athletic life that you'd like to take a quick moment to fill in? Not really fill in, but I will just say that I love competing. I love the sport, but what I really love is the kids and the work that I'm doing there. So I'm glad we're going to have a chance to talk about that as well. So from here, I'm going to ask the big question that I ask all my guests, and that is, what is your age at this moment in time? I'm 73. Fantastic. And how old do you feel? Uh, about 50. I love it. <laughs> on any given day. Depends. <laughs> hey, if you feel 50 on any given day, you're you're in a good place. 
So let's start at the beginning. What did your early athletic life look like? Did you play sports or were you active growing up? Well, that's an interesting question. At this age that I am now, uh, when I was growing up, there was no Title IX. And what that means is that girls that were in school didn't have an opportunity. There was no organized sports for girls. Everything was just for the boys. So I didn't have a chance to do any kind of athletic, organized athletics when I was growing up. But fortunately, I was raised in a family with two brothers and a couple of parents that said when I would come and complain that I don't get to play like the guys do, they simply said, stop whining and go out and get in the boys' games. So I played not organized sports, but anytime there was any kind of pickup game or neighborhood game or anything, I just went out and played with the boys. And I think what that did for me, although I never had the chance to, to compete like girls do now as I was growing up, but it did teach me that I could do anything if I could just get in the game. It gave me a sense of confidence, I think, that has been very helpful throughout. Yeah. And I imagine it also gave you not just confidence, but the ability to make things happen for yourself because things weren't given to you. The The opportunity yeah. to be in athletics was never given to you. You had to go out and get it. So I imagine that translates well into how you persevere in the races that you're in today. Yeah, it probably does. I'd never thought about that, but uh, it probably does. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what kinds of sports and games did you play? What did you make happen for yourself? Uh, well, I played, uh, I got in a lot of basketball games. I'm tall <laughs> and I was tall as a kid, so I, I could easily get into basketball games. I played some, some softball. Uh, we had a lot of kick the can kinds of games. I don't know if that means anything to young people, but I know what kick the can is. Okay. Just neighborhood games. And, and those, you know, girls could play in those, but most of them didn't because they, they kind of got rough and tumble. So it, it's what I remember most. And I played some tennis with uh, some guys and those are the ones that I remember, but you know, anything that they were doing, I would just get into. You just put yourself out there yeah. and get into it. Yeah. And I imagine that that might not have been the norm. A lot of families might not have supported girls getting out and playing out there with the boys like it sounds like your family did. You are absolutely right. My parents were were really good. It wasn't it wasn't a, a family where they cuddled you and made you feel comfortable. They were they just threw you in the middle of things. And um, that was very different. Yeah, you are absolutely right. Very different than most families that girls came from. Yeah. So how and when did you find your way into triathlons? Well, that's an interesting question because it certainly is not the normal way that people get into uh, to triathlons. Um, it, it kind of happened in two parts. And the first part started in 1986 when I was 42 years old. I was in the professional world. I was working in the computer business and I was busy what I, you know, we say climbing the corporate ladder. Everything was going very well. And, um, I, on, my husband and I did a lot of traveling, but we always tried to be on for the weekends, a home and together for the weekends. And we were doing what we did on Sunday mornings, which is going to sound crazy to a bunch of athletes listening to this, but we would lie in bed, sleep late, lie in bed, drink coffee, read the newspaper, and eat sticky buns. And so one Sunday morning in March of 1986, I read that the first LA marathon was happening in LA. And we lived in Marina del Rey, right in LA. And so I turned on TV because it was on a local station. And I watched this thing from wire to wire and was just fascinated by it. Um, and 
I, I was really not inspired as much as I was just kind of pissed off because these people had set a goal and had worked hard on that goal. And on that day, they were out there testing themselves to see if they could do it. And I was lying in bed eating sticky buns. And I thought, you know, <laughs> what's wrong with this picture? So the next day I went out and I bought a pair of running shoes and I bought a book called How to Run Your First Marathon. And I read it cover to cover, and it was really a very unsophisticated book. It just said, learn to stay on your feet for a long time. Didn't tell you anything about drinking or anything, you know. But so I started running, and that was in March. And I signed, I was going to sign up for the next LA marathon. And in August, I had scoped out a 20 mile run from Palos Verdes to, San, uh, to Marina del Rey, where we lived, and asked my husband to drop me off. And he did. And I ran home. He supported me along the way. And I got home and, and I felt fine after 20 miles. So he convinced me. He's, he's not an athlete. He doesn't know. He didn't know anything about running. But he convinced me that I should enter a marathon sooner than the following March. So I entered one in uh, the uh, run through the Redwood Forest in October of 86, which was about six months after I'd started running. And I thought maybe I could do it in four hours. And I did it in 326. And I just loved it. I thought it was great. So I kept doing marathons. And um, I saw that, that that time qualified me for Boston. So my second marathon was Boston. And by that time, I decided I, I like this running business. And so I'm running a couple of marathons a year, and I'm just happy with this. Everything's fine, and I can do it with the kind of work I'm doing. You know, it hasn't changed my life dramatically. And the next part of this story starts in um, October of 91, when I was uh, just about 48. And uh, I read a magazine, a competitor magazine, about Iron Man because it was in October. And so this magazine was dedicated to Ironman. And I read this magazine. I didn't own a bike. I didn't swim. And I read this, th this whole magazine and I thought that it was nuts. I couldn't imagine people doing this kind of stuff. So I put the magazine down instead of throwing it away. And my husband picked it up and read it and said, you should do this. You should do this. You'd be really good at it. How he knew that, I have no idea. So he had just quit his job to try his hand at writing a book, writing a novel. So I was the breadwinner. So he kind of got me interested in trying this Iron Man stuff. But I finally said to him, if I did it, I'd have to take a six-month leave of absence from work because I can't, I'm traveling too much and I have to buy a bike. I have to learn how to ride. I have to learn how to swim. And so I, I couldn't do it now. So a couple of months later, he came home, it's in January of 92, with a book contract. And he put it down on my desk in front of me and he said, put your money where your mouth is, take a six-month leave of absence and go try this thing. I like your husband, Yeah, by the way. can you imagine? I like him a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every time I tell people that, they say, wow, that's some guy. And he really was, you know. And so I did. By that time, he had me convinced I really wanted to try it. So then I went to my company and I said, I want a six-month leave. And we negotiated this deal that I would stay through April, which I did. So I started actually trying to be a triathlete in April of that year. I I had called a guy down in San Diego who I'd read was a coach. And I said, I, I'm not a triathlete, but I'm going to go to Kona in October. <laughs> you can imagine. He said to me, it was so sweet. He said, 
how are you going to get there? Meaning, how are you going to qualify? Because you have to qualify to get into Konik. It's the world championships, you know. I knew nothing of this. You're like, I'm going to fly. That's exactly, that's exactly <laughs> what I said to him. That's and, what I would have said. And I said it with some attitude. You know, I thought, how dumb is this guy? You know, I thought, think I'll fly. And he was sweet. He could have just hung up on me at that point. But he explained to me that he had to qualify and that if I wasn't a triathlete, I probably wouldn't be able to qualify this first year. And so he suggested that I sign up for Canada, which was in August. So I signed up to do Canada in August. And in April, I started training. And I learned how to bike and I learned how to run. And I, I did Wildflower that first, like a month into my training. Do you know Wildflower? Wildflower is a an extremely tough half Ironman. For those who don't know, what's the length of a half Ironman? Half Ironman is a 1.2 mile swim a 56-mile bike, and a um, 13.1-mile run. So it's just half the distance of the full Ironman. And since I had just gotten on a bike and just started, 56 miles was a huge challenge to me. And, of course, I could run the 13.1 and, but, and swimming. I'd never been in open water before. So the swim was going to be a challenge to me. But the coach said, if you think you can go into it and not try and win this thing, because he had already figured out that I was pretty competitive, he said, go ahead and try it. And it was very good for me because it was such a tough race. Tough. The course is very tough, lots and lots of hills, that I just thought that that's what these races were all about, that everyone was going to be this tough which which are not. Some of them are, are easier because they're flatter. But that got me really going and into it. And I did pretty well on that first race. And um, so I continued to train. And in August, just before the Ironman in Canada, I did another half Ironman um, called Mike and Rob's Most Excellent Triathlon. Good name. Up in Ventura. And I did not know at the time when I went in that it was a qualifying race for Kona. And I placed third. So I thought, well, I'll go to the awards because that's pretty cool. I placed third. And at this award ceremony, they started handing out slots to Kona. And so when they called me us up to the podium, at that time I was 45 to 49. There were three of us up there, first, second, third. And they asked the first place person if she needed the slot, wanted the slot to Kona. And she said, no, I already have one. Then they asked the second place, and she said, no, I already have one. <laughs> so they turned to me and said, Cherie, do you want the slot to Kona? And without thinking for one second, I said, absolutely. So in a couple of months, couple of months after that, I, had, I cashed in my ticket for Canada and bought a new ticket for Kona. So it was essentially like less than six months after I started biking and swimming that I stood at the start line in Kona. And, um, you know, it was almost my first triathlon. I'd done these couple of little ones, I mean, a couple of training ones, but this was practically my, you know, I was, I was a beginner. I knew nothing. I really knew nothing, but I did that first race and just had the grandest time. My husband has pictures of me with a silly loopy grin on my face. I just couldn't believe I was actually doing it. And when I went in I had set the goal. I thought I could do it in 14 hours. And when I crossed the finish line, I had done it in 12:27, and I had just loved every minute of it. So when I crossed that finish line, I ran right into my husband's arms and I said, this is it. This is what I want to do. I never want to go back to the software business. This is what I want to do. And so I actually stopped work for a few years, but uh, I just started doing Ironman racing and loved every minute of it. So 
That's my story. That's a good story. I have so many questions coming out of that. So you you were a natural. Like you you took to this, having never done anything like this aside from some marathons. What do you think helped you be such a natural at this? Well, you know, um, obviously I have some some pretty good genes, and and so the athletic part, you know, I I knew I had some game from early on in life. So so learning to bike and learning to swim. Um, and it wasn't like I had never been in water. I, I could swim, but I didn't know how to really, really swim. But, you know, that, that part of it was just a matter of learning how to do it. Like I learned how to do the running. Uh, and then I think that when you do something like an Ironman, um, or long distance kind of racing, what it really takes it more even than, than physical ability is it takes a strong mind and someone who can, suffer and somebody who can not not let things get negative when they get tough but rather figure out a way to get through it and to make things happen and i think you pointed out that maybe some of that came from my early life uh but whatever i i, I had some of that and it all just kind of came together for me and and what you said you know as soon as you finished that first that at kona in hawaii that that championship race this is it I'm all in on this. What made you fall in love with it? You know, um, I think it goes back again to what I just keep saying is it, it's a tough challenge. And I had always all through my life, uh, a tough challenge really gets me. I love it as opposed to something that's a little bit easier. And this is uh, doing an Ironman is tough no matter what age you are, no matter how well you do it. It's just, it's a tough, tough challenge. And when you finish it, there is such a sense of accomplishment and such a, such a life-changing, especially in, when you do it the first time, uh, a feel of, if I can do that, there's nothing that's going to really throw me in life. And, and also there's this bonding with athletes that do endurance kind of stuff because we all know what it takes to do something like that. And I like that kind of group, that kind of bonding feeling with people of like minds. So it just seemed to be a world that I, I, I felt like after that first one that I felt like I could do it well. And I liked everything about it, the whole surroundings, all the people and the, the kind of things we had to go through to get to that finish line. Yeah. And that's a story I actually have heard more than once in my interviews for this podcast is the, the people I talk to, A, like the competition, A, like the challenge, but B, really love the community. Yes. and. It applies in a number of different uh, sports and fields, but that comes up again and again. It's it's you're you're all in this together. You all understand that the pain you're in and the struggle and the training and the sacrifice and that makes you a tighter knit group. Because Absolutely. Of it. Yeah. So when did you earn your first Ironman World Championship age group title? And how many times did you completed that race up until that point? Um, I did it two, the first year I came in ninth. The second year I came in sixth. Both of those were off the podium. And the third year I was 50, went into a new age group. So I was competing in 50, 54. And that was actually my slowest time of the first of I had done. That was my third slowest time. 
but that's when I won for the first time. Yeah. So as I mentioned in your intro, you have twice won the double. Can you go into a little more depth on what that entails and talk about what type of training you need to conquer both of these races in a year? Um, the There are two distances that, that I do and that we've talked about. One is the Ironman and one is the half Ironman. And I gave you the distance for the half Ironman. So the full Ironman is a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, and a full marathon, 26.2. So uh, starting uh, a, a number of years ago, they started a championship race for this, the, the half. It's called a 70.3. And the reason for that is an Ironman is 140.6 miles. And so they decided that instead of calling it a half Ironman, because that sounded like you just weren't really working hard enough if you only did a half. Right. It's a, yeah, it's a baby race. They started calling it a 70.3. So because that's 70.3 miles. Which is plenty yes, of miles. And you race that harder and faster because it's a shorter distance race. So they uh, have these 70.3 world championships and the uh, Ironman championship, world championships. And you have to qualify for both of them. And they have one of them in September, that for the 70.3 is in September, and the Ironman is in October. Um, the, di- the, the difference in training is, is not that great if you're going to do both of them, because the best training for the full Ironman is the half Ironman racing. So I have always done uh, three or four half Ironmans as a preparation for the full Ironman. So for me, it was just kind of a natural when I did it those, those two times and I've, I've raced the two of them. Well, no, that's not true. I, when I did it those two times, I just had trained all season in this with a 70.3 distance, then did the world championships in the 70.3. And while I was training for those 70.3s, I was just doing longer bikes and longer runs and longer swims at the same time, because I knew then as soon as I finished the 70.3 championships, I was going to do the longer distance. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So in a way, it's nice to do the double because you have that distance that you're training for and you can kind of strategize around that 70.3 distance. Yeah. Yeah. So over the years, you've earned an impressive number of records and awards. And perhaps one of the coolest, in my opinion, was the time you ended up on a Wheaties box. And (laughs) you're definitely my first guest to have that distinction. I'll just tell you right now. Can you talk about how that came about? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. and, and first, I, I need to make absolutely clear, you know how like Bruce Jenner and Mary Lou Retton were on the Wheaties box and I guess Lance Armstrong at one time was on the Wheaties box. This was a little bit different than that. This was a new cereal. This wasn't the, the standard Wheaties. This was a new cereal that uh, General Mills was coming out with and they were looking for what they called the everyday champion. So they put out a call for looking for people to nominate someone as an everyday champion. And they had, you know, different criteria that they were looking for. I didn't know this, but my husband, this guy that has been so good to me in my career, had nominated me. When he he saw this, I knew nothing about it, absolutely nothing about it. And uh, he sent the form in nominating me and then completely forgot about it, never mentioned it to me. One year we went to Kona and when we came home, this was before the days of, of internet, we came home and 
there was a letter in the mail that had been sitting there for the two weeks that we'd been in Kona. And it said, you have been selected, you've made the first cut, and the next thing is you need to, we're bringing you back to Minnesota, to the headquarters of General Mills for the next selection part of the left selection process. So I had missed it because I'd been gone. And that when we got home and I got that letter, I said, how, where'd this come from? And so my husband told me that he had, he had nominated me and then forgot about it. So we called them and they said, not a problem. Uh, and so they set it up. I went back to general mills and they did this full day or a couple of days of stuff. And then they brought us back again and for an introduction in uh, oh, what's New York's? I've lost the name of it. The, a big place in New York. Rockefeller. No, Center. but it's it's just as big. You would kill me if I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, doesn't matter. They brought us back where they had this big unveiling. Mary Lou Renton was there, and they had this big unveiling of this big, huge Wheaties box. Ma- a Madison Square That's Garden. It. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna Thank get you. This. It was Madison Square Garden, and they unveiled it. And they had us, and I was not the only one. There were four others, I believe, that were on this Wheaties box. The whole experience was kind of cool. And then when they put them out in the stores, they had us, you know, big openings of, of uh, introducing the people on the Wheaties box. And, and it was great fun. It's, it sounds like a really cool, unique experience. It really was. Too bad, but the cereal didn't make it. It wasn't actually very good. It was too sweet. But the nice thing about that is that we were the only batch of people that were on it. If the, the cereal had made it, they would have had other everyday champions on it. Sure. So you're part of a, an elite club. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's really neat. That's really cool. And I imagine you still have one of those boxes. I do. I do. And Mary Lou Retton told us a really cute story. She said that uh, in her family, the, the, all the gold medals and all the things that she's won over the years meant nothing to the family. But the Wheaties box, that was a big deal. It's amazing what what is meaningful to people, you know? It's like, now you've made it. Uh, what other awards or records would you say you're most proud of? I got an award for, I, I'm not even sure what they called it. I had, there was a wonderful woman that was part of this sport, huge part of this sport when I got into it that was just a year older than I. You may have heard of her, Barbara Warren. She was a, a, t- a twin. And uh, she was killed in a biking accident during a race where I was racing right with her. And um, I got an award. The, it was called the Barbara Warren, Warren Award. And it was for, you know, being an athlete and being somebody more than an athlete that cared and took care of community and that kind of thing. That was very special to me because I, I knew Barbara so well. And just because and it was another one where athletes uh, nominated me. Uh, and I've gotten several like that that are f- not for I got I was in the running for the award because of my athletic career, but it was because I was more than an athlete. And that's important to me because I, I think being an athlete is a very we we do it for ourselves and it gives us some visibility. It gives us an opportunity to do things for other people. And so that's that's important to me. It's it's more important than the athletic part, I believe. And that's a good opportunity for us to segue and talk about the work you're doing outside of your athletic life. So let's talk about your foundation. It's called Exceeding Expectations. Can you talk about the work you're doing through this foundation? In December of 2000, I was invited to a school to speak to in San Bernardino to speak to a group of fifth and sixth grade kids. And I did. And how it happened is another story that we don't have time for. But from that, 
I started taking, I started, I selected 12 kids and uh, I was going to train them to, to uh, just a local little race there. And, you know, I assumed that these kids had parents and uh, maybe some bikes, maybe not, but maybe some bikes. And uh, so after I selected these 12 kids, I then went to pick them up on a Saturday morning to take them to training. And on that Saturday morning, my life completely changed. I saw the way that these kids were living and these families. And I thought I understood poverty and hopelessness, but I had always seen it from the outside looking in. And this time I went in and I saw what it looked like from their vantage point. And it just broke my heart. So I started working with these kids uh, training them to do little triathlons and a couple of, and, and it was wonderful. The kids just responded and, and it was terrific. Uh, and just a couple of months into it, I had a, a car full of kids taking them home from something. And I was talking to them about graduating from high school and then going on to college and so forth. And this little kid, Nicholas stopped me. And he said to me in these exact words, he said, Cherie, why are you talking to us about this? That's for other kids. It's not for us. And that was like being hit over the head with a two by four. This is a chance of birth that I was living the life that I was. And these kids were living the life that they were with no opportunities when my life was full of opportunities. And the problem that they were living with were they were many. But the problem that every single kid had was what I call the abuse of low expectations. Nobody in their life expected them to do anything. Of these 12 kids that I had was starting with, not a single one of them had anybody in their extended families who had ever graduated from high school, from high school. And nobody in their world ever expected anything different from them. And I realized at that point that taking them to races was good, but it was nowhere near enough for what these kids needed. So that became exceeding expectations. And what our goal in exceeding expectations is, is to get these kids educated, which will give them the opportunity to better their lives and the lives of their families. And I use the sport of triathlon to give them opportunities to teach them the skills that they'll need, you know, goal setting and, and working hard and getting through tough situations, to give them the chance to mix and mingle with successful people, some of them who look just like them, who have faced adversity and, and are, are making it. And it's that was 17 years ago. We've had, you know, it's a little grassroots operation. Uh, we deal one kid at a time, solve one problem at a time. But we've got three graduates, two from UCSD, one from Berkeley. We've got a kid in UCLA. We've got 14 kids in college right now. The deal that I make with these kids when they come into the program is their job is to do well in school and graduate from high school and to get into the best college or whatever the educational school is for them. And my job is to make sure that the finances are taken care of because these kids could not do it on their own. And it's working. It's working. Um, you know, there are lots and lots of challenges along the way, but one kid at a time, it's working. And it's all financed by the generosity of people out there in the athletic community, the business community, 
people are have stepped up for 17 years and helped us take these kids racing and send them to college. So this is this is the important thing that I do with my life. That's amazing work, and it really. It really hit me when you talked about the statement that hit you, that the, the child that said, this is not for me, that they just never believed, yeah. you know, that they could get higher education because that's just how they how they were raised. And it's one thing to have somebody not believe in you, but it's another thing to not believe in yourself and and just to not think that this exists for you. And so it's wonderful that you're changing lives, not just helping them get education, but changing their mindset to believe that this is something that is yeah, for them. Yeah, you know, it's 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 a wonderful thing for me be, to see the 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 way it's changed because in the beginning I had to do a lot of work to convince these people because they had never seen it happen before, these kids and and their families. And now we've got kids that are, have done it, that are doing it. They've seen that when I say, we'll pay for it, we'll make sure you get there. We'll help you solve the problems along the way. And we do it. So now these little kids come into the program and I'll tell you the little seven-year-olds, you ask them what they're going to do. They're going to college, you know? So the family, the kids and the families, and they, they believe it now. And I imagine at this point, you've been doing this for so long that you have graduates of the program that can then help newer people in the program. And it's like, look, I was you, you know, you're exactly right. We have several that they come back all the time and they talk to these kids and they, they go out and give talks even, you know, say, and they talk about, I was a, you know, a kid with no opportunity, nothing. And look at me now. Yeah, they do. They, the kids that, that are, are older are really, they understand the help that they got and what it meant to them. So it's great. It's really good. I love it. That's so amazing. And I imagine there might be some people listening to this that might connect with this, that maybe at some point in their lives, they didn't believe that education was something that they could have or saw limits to their future. And if that's something that our listeners connect with and want to help out with, how can they do that? Uh, our website is EE for Exceeding Expectations, eefoundation.org. And uh, they can go there, That they can talk to me, they can read about the program, they can donate through there. And we need we the donations with time and money. Time and money is what we need to help these kids. So I would like to take a little bit of time to look back at the entirety of your race career. Can you take us back to your worst, your hardest, or what you consider to be your most difficult race? Yeah, I sure can. Um, on paper, one would say that my worst race had to be in Utah, Utah Ironman in 2010, because halfway through that race, a fellow stepped out. He'd been changing a tire, stepped out with his bike on the road without looking in, right in front of me. I hit him, flew over my handlebars, broke my collarbone, and I ended up in surgery that night as opposed to the finish line. And that knocked me out for the season, rest of the season. So that you would might say was the worst race, but I, I don't consider it that, you know, those things happen when you're doing these kind of sport, this kind of sport. There was a, a race in 2013, uh, Ironman in Kona and I was 69. And so I was right at the top of the age group. You race from six in five year increments. So it was, I had been in the 65, 69 and of course, when you're at the top of your age group, it's tougher because you're racing against younger kids, younger, younger people. So I knew it was going to be a tough year, but I was ready. I was in fighting shape. And the day that we got to Kona, which was about a week before the race, 
I was walking out to the the road to do a practice practice run, tripped on a piece of lava and took a fall, not a tough fall, but I broke my fall by hitting a palm tree and I smacked it pretty hard and cracked a couple of ribs. And uh, so I, you know, was, I was not a hundred percent on race day, but I could have raced better than I did. And that's what makes this for me, the race that will haunt me for the rest of my life. I have always been such a firm believer and I teach it to people when I coach them and I believe it myself and I practice it myself, which is if you commit to the start line, regardless of what you have on that day, if you have 50%, you get a hundred percent out of what you have. And I clearly went to the race start that day far less than 100%, but I didn't even get 100% out of what I had. Somewhere along the, the race course, I just might let my head turn against me. And I, I would never say I gave up, but I, I didn't give it everything I could have given it. And that will trouble me till the rest of my time. I got over it, you know, enough to, to get back in the game but it was something that I'll never, never forget. So what is the most important thing that you learned from that race? Well, you know, probably because I, it, that was nothing new to me that when you are hampered, you're not at a hundred percent, you have to suck it up and do what you can on that day. So that wasn't a new thing that I learned, but I guess I learned that it doesn't matter how long you've been around or how many different things you've experienced you always have to be mindful to the basics, the things that you know are the things that make you successful because that was a thing that I knew and I simply didn't do it. I simply didn't practice what I knew I had to do to be successful. So I think that the lesson learned is never get complacent. doesn't matter how long you've been around or how much you've done. It's always, always keep your eye on the ball. And And it seems like, that race really stuck in your head. I find it so interesting. You talked about those two different races and one where you took a hard fall and had to get surgery, but that's not the worst. The worst was that feeling you had knowing that you didn't give a hundred percent and it stuck with you so much that I imagine that never happened again. Nope. <laughs> not in training, not in racing. So on the other side, would you like to tell us about your favorite race? Yes, I would. I, I've had several that uh, were really, really my favorite, but I will tell you about in 2015. In 2015, I retired from the Ironman racing. So people ask me frequently, how long are you going to do this? And um, I knew the answer. I've always known the answer. And the answer was when the training is no longer fun, that's when it's time to hang it up. And, you know, I train out here in the desert where during the summertime where it probably averages about 110 or 112. It can be 115, 18. I've trained in 122 out here and I did it for for 25 years. And so in 2014, I began to feel like I was not enjoying this anymore. I used to get jump out of bed and say, oh, boy, it's going to be 115 today. This is great. I wasn't doing that anymore. <laughs> You're very strange, you know. <laughs> so uh, uh, in 2014, I really wasn't having a good time. But when I crossed the finish line in 2014, it never occurred to me that it had been onerous enough that I didn't want to do it again. So I started training in 2015. And I started noticing that it really, really wasn't 
I, I was not enjoying it. And maybe this was the time. And then on a day in July, I went out for an 85 mile ride and it was 118 and it was humid. So it felt like 122, something like that. And it, it was so bad that I stopped at a fire station to get some ice. And the guys said, we're going to follow you. You were either going to take you home in the truck or we're going to follow you to make sure you get home safely. So I was really not enjoying that. And when I got home from that ride, I said to my husband, Lee, this is it. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired of this training. But I knew that in order to walk away, because this, this race had become a, a huge part of my life. And so I knew in order to happily give up that part of my life, I was going to have to have a race that I was so happy with that I felt like I was leaving on my own terms and I was happy to do it. I didn't know exactly what that meant. I figured it had to do something to do with winning, but it, it it had to be more than that, I, I felt. So I trained my butt off in 2015. I was ready to go. I was hating every minute of it, to tell you the truth, but I was training hard. So I got there and there were, uh, I don't know, a dozen, maybe 15 women in the age group, but there were three that I figured would, would be on the podium, myself and two others. Um, one of them, I felt like I, I would tangle with her on the bike, but I could get her on the run. And so I wasn't too concerned about her. The other one was a woman, a delightful woman named Natalie, who had been racing for a lot of years. And in the last bunch of years, she'd placed second to me a number of times. And uh, I, I figured that usually I would pick her off on the run. She could get past me on the bike. I would get out of the water before she did. She'd catch me on the bike and then um, I would catch her early on in the run. But I figured she was going to be the one I was going to have to to uh, worry about the most. So we went into the race, and as it turned out, I did get out of the water before she did. I heard them calling her out of the water as I was starting the bike, so I knew she was where she was behind me. Um, early on in the bike, like about mile 45, she passed me, which was earlier than she normally did. So I knew that she was in real good shape and and ready to go. And she had just turned 70. So, uh, she, I knew that she, she I had talked to her before, so I knew that she was going to be shooting to try and do something special when she turned 70. And she was, she passed me early. The other woman and I were kind of, uh, wrestling with each other on the bike and, um, she passed both of us. Then I caught her again on the bike, uh, closer to the end, but she passed me again. So she was ahead of me, but not a terrible amount. We got into transition. I came in exactly with the other woman. She and I came in together, and I dropped her early on in mile one of the run. So then I thought, okay, now go get Natalie. And like I said, I normally passed her by mile six. And this time I didn't. And I never saw her, even though there was a point where there's a turnaround, so you should, should be able to see each other. And somehow I missed her. I had a lot of friends out on the course, you know, watching and people were all giving me uh, times. They were saying, she's two minutes ahead. She's four minutes ahead. She's three minutes ahead. And it wasn't that our paces were changing. It was just that people weren't accurate with their times. <laughs> but what everyone said consistently, the same thing, is they would say, she's two minutes ahead, but she doesn't look good. 
And then the next person would say, she's four minutes ahead, but she doesn't look good. And so I finally stopped listening to that because I thought, I don't care if she doesn't look good. She's staying ahead of me. She must feel good, you know? So we got out to the energy lab, which if you don't know this, this course, you go down into this. By the time I got there, it was pitch black and you go down a two mile kind of a slight hill and then you turn around and come back up. And so as I went into that, I, it was very dark and out there on that course, you can't see anybody at that point. And so Lee, my husband mentioned to me as I went down, he said, she's two minutes ahead of you. So when I got down to the energy lab, down to the bottom, I still hadn't seen her. I turned around and I saw a woman that I thought might be Natalie. So I got my best form together and I passed her and I thought, okay, great. That's it. I've got her. Now it's just hold this pace, get home. Well, when I got to the top of the energy lab to turn out to the highway, which gives you six more miles to get home, my husband was still there and he said, she's two minutes ahead of you. I said, I thought I passed her. And he said, nope. So I put it into another gear and went looking for her. And um, so I am 1.3 miles from the finish and I have not seen or passed Natalie. And I should have been pretty concerned. But as I'm running up, the last thing you do is at 1.3 miles, you're, you're just finishing an uphill and then you get to the top of what's called Polani Hill and then you go down a big hill and then you run a mile to the finish line. So it's 1.2 miles home from there. And just as I'm starting to go up the last part of the hill, I hear a friend on the side of the road, can't even see her because it's so dark, but I hear her say, Cherie, she's right up there. And I looked up and I saw a figure, I would not have recognized Natalie, but I saw a figure just starting to go under a light at the top of the hill. And I just cranked it into another gear and went flying up the hill, passed her right at the top of the hill went flying to the bottom of the hill. Now, my husband is now at the bottom of the hill, and he's wondering how he's going to console me because he figures, oh, God, she's going to think she's got a race again next year. She's going to be so unhappy with this race. And he saw me coming down the hill first and just went crazy. And I hardly gave him the time of day because I still had to get to the finish line. And I just kept running as fast as I could because I had no idea if she was going to be able to kick it in or not. And I made it to the finish line. And she, having broke the record that I had set the year before, which was very good. And um, I waited for her there. And then three and a half minutes later, she came in. And that to me was a very, very gratifying race, not just because I won, but because I had a lot of reason out there to let myself go negative. I had a lot riding on that race, more than I had riding on most of my other races. And I held it together. I never panicked. I stayed calm. And so I think that that's what allowed me when I needed to sprint or what the version of sprinting you do at that point, I was able to do it because I had stayed calm. Whereas if I'd have been panicked and trying to push myself, being concerned, uh, I don't think I could have. So I was, I was really thrilled with that race. And uh, it should not go without saying Natalie was delightful. She, she was the best sport I have ever seen because she had every reason to believe that that was going to be her first Ironman win. And she handled the disappointment 
incredibly well. She was a real genuine, nice lady. And so that's how I ended my Ironman career. That was the race that I could walk away, and I have been nothing but happy since. And what a thrilling way to do it, too. Thank you for taking me through that experience. That's kind of the first time anyone's ever really taken me through an Ironman, especially in that run. And just I I could envision every minute of that. So that was a really cool way to experience what you experienced. So what types of unique challenges or conversely perhaps even benefits do you find that you encounter as an older athlete training and competing at such a high level? Because you are still competing, just not at Ironman. The thing that I think is as you get older, you walk a very fine line. You cannot do the times that you used to do. You, you simply can't as you get older. And you have to, you can't, you can only fight that so much. You have to reconcile yourself to the fact that, particularly in the run, that you are going to slow down. But if you let yourself feel like, well, I'm getting older, I just can't do the things I used to do, then your performance is going to just go. So you have to, to, in my opinion, you have to reconcile yourself to the fact that if I can still do the workouts I used to do, I, I'm not going to do the times that I used to do, but I can still push myself in those hard workouts where I have to make the adjustment is in my head to know that a slower time is still, it's very good for me right now. And the other thing is the, the adjustment of putting in more rest. You have, you can't do the back to back to back hard workouts any longer. You can still have the same quality workouts as long as you accept that quality, it means it's still going to be a little slower. And as long as you put rest in between those hard workouts. And I think that, uh, doing that kind of thing can keep you going for a long time and it will keep you fairly injury free, which is, you know, one of the things older athletes worry about. So you accept the changes that are happening with you that come with age, but you do not allow that to make you complacent. Exactly. And and it's really astonishing at times what you can do, how much more you, you, you are still able to do if you do it wisely. It, and it's it's a delightful surprise when you go out and you do something and you think, wow, you know, that's not that far off of what I used to be able to do. So it's, you know, but you got to keep pushing. I love hearing, you know, every time I talk to an athlete on the show, it, it just serves to remind me that, you know, there are still surprises in store. And that's what I hope happens with the people listening as well. It's like, you can still surprise yourself and you can still do amazing things no matter what age you are. What advice would you give to someone who may be around your age, has entertained the idea of trying a triathlon, but may find it intimidating or out of relief? Well, you know, I'm not the gentle type. So the first thing I would say, I guess, is what are you waiting for? You know, what's the downside? If if a person is uh, afraid to try or is intimidated, you know, there's only a couple of reasons why. One is that you think you're going to look stupid. And, you know, I contend if you've reached this age, you look stupid plenty of times in your life. You know, what difference does it make? What's one more? And uh, is or you're afraid you can't do it. You know, you won't be able to finish it. You won't be able to, to make it. Well, you know, so what? It's the trying that matters. And if you try, you're probably going to be able to. If you don't try, you're certainly not going to be able to. So you got nothing to lose. Just get out there and do it, you know, and and I I tell people all the time. It's one of my favorite sayings. If you believe you can or if you believe you can't, you're always right. 
So tell yourself you can and get out there and do it. You are not the first person to come on the show to say that, to say that quote, which just is a testament to that quote. It's, and I've, I've heard it a bunch of times and I, and I tell it to people myself, you know, it is so powerful. So just, you may as well believe you can. Exactly. So if somebody wanted to talk to you about coaching, uh, is there a place they could go? Yeah, they, well, they can just, uh, I, I am an Ironman university coach, probably the best way, you know, I've sent everybody through the EE website. Yeah. You know, and my, my email is real easy too. If they know how to spell my name, it's just Sheree Grunfeld at, or Sheree at Sheree So they can just do that or they can uh, go through the EE website and just say, uh, I'm I want to talk to you about coaching. So I'll have all that information in the show notes as well. So if somebody listening is interested in contacting you directly, they can go to the show notes for this episode and see how everything's spelled and go to uh, eefoundation.org to find out more about exceeding expectations. So before we go, do you have one parting piece of wisdom that you've learned in your competitive journey that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, you know, I have two uh, uh, quotes that are very important to me that would impart the wisdom that I believe is what this is all about. And I'll tell you about those two. The first one is is the Teddy Roosevelt in the arena quote. It is framed and in my bathroom, and so I see it many times a day. And it's I will just kind of paraphrase. What he is saying is it is far better to be the person in the arena that is willing to step into the arena than the critic looking from the outside and watching and critiquing you in the arena. But the man that goes in and gets bloodied and battered as he's trying to accomplish something, goes home having failed, comes back and tries again, because that guy in the arena knows the losing and knows the great feel of victory. Now, those are my words. Teddy Roosevelt says it beautifully. It's something that I just, it just to me speaks of what it is we need to do to make life worth living, which is get in and give it a try. And the other thing to older people, it's never too late to be what you might have been. So don't sit back thinking about what could have been. It's never too late to be what I might, what you might have been. I love that. That really speaks to me. And that speaks to what, what I want to accomplish with the show as well. So thank you so much for sharing that quote. I hope it speaks to people. Like I it hope it just so spoke to me. Cherie, thank you so much for being on the seasoned athlete. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you and hearing about your racing career, your accomplishments, and your wonderful foundation exceeding expectations. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Okay, seasoned athletes, before we go, I want to leave you with my top three takeaways from triathlete and seasoned athlete extraordinaire Cherie Gruenfeld. Number one, you can do anything if you just get in the game. Shuri did not have opportunities to participate in organized sports growing up, so she had to make opportunities happen for herself. This can really apply to any part of your life, athletic or otherwise, where you want to make something happen for yourself. If you want to do something, don't wait for the opportunity to become available to you. Make it happen. Number two, give your all at all times even if it's less than you usually can. We don't always get the opportunity to be our very best at all times, but we can still do our very best with what we have. Don't hold back. Give all that you can, even if it's less than usual. Compete and live with no regrets. And number three, it's never too late to be what you might have been. Don't ever think it's too late for you to accomplish something that you've always wanted to accomplish. If there's something that you've always wanted to do, and maybe that includes competing in a triathlon, just get out there and do it. 
thanks again to the wonderful Cherie Grunfeld. If you want to contact her for coaching or to learn more about the Exceeding Expectations Foundation, be sure to visit eefoundation.org. Thank you for listening to the Seasoned Athlete Podcast. The music you heard on this episode is from bensound.com. All right, friends, I have a really big favor to ask. I need your help to get the word out about Seasoned Athlete. How can you do that? It's really easy. Just share. Share it with your friends, your family, your network, or anyone you think might benefit from the stories told by the incredible athletes featured on this show. Send out an email, share on social media, or sing our praises from the mountaintops. The more you talk about Seasoned Athlete, the more people we can reach, inspire, and motivate through this show. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for your help. And while you're at it, follow us on social, Seasoned Athlete Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And hey, do you know someone who would make a great guest on this show? Shoot us an email, seasonedathlete at gmail.com and tell us all about them. Or if it's you, tell us all about yourself. Now go out there and embrace your extraordinary, my fellow seasoned athletes, because you know what? You so can.